Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna from the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. It's September 2023 and event season is back in full swing at NCW. We've hosted two sold-out events with Margot Dwayhe and Rose Tremaine at Dragon Hall so far this month, and it was a great feeling to have so many book lovers and writers back in our venue. Make sure to check out the What's On section of our website, National Centre for Writing, org.uk to see everything that's coming up this autumn at Dragon Hall and online, including book launches, performances, writing workshops and courses. For today's episode, I'm delighted to hand the mic to my colleague Rebecca Devold, Programme Manager at NCW. A few weeks ago, Rebecca hosted an interview with Kalafa Palanga and Daniel Hahn on the process of writing and translating Kalaf's exhilarating debut novel, Whites Can Dance Too. Told through three different voices, White's Can Dance 2 is Kalaf Apalanga's reflection on and celebration of the music of his homeland, the intertwining of cultural roots and freedom and love. Kalaf Apalanga is a musician and writer, best known internationally for fronting the Lisbon-based dance collective Baraka Som Sistema. He is a celebrated columnist in Angola and Portugal. Daniel Hahn is a writer, editor and translator with over 100 books to his name. He has translated fiction and non-fiction for adults and children from Europe, Africa and the Americas. Rebecca chatted with Kalaf and Daniel about many aspects of writing and translating Whites Can Dance too, including the structure of the book and whether it can be called non-fiction. They also discussed the process of translating music and different forms of Portuguese from Portugal, Angola and Brazil. So now I'll hand over to Rebecca in conversation with Kalaf Epilanga and Daniel Hahn. Hello, um, thanks very much for joining me today, Kalaf and Danny, to talk about Whites Can Dance Too, which is a book Kalaf wrote and Danny translated for us from Portuguese into English. Um, so drive straight into it. Can you tell me a little bit how, how the book came about, particularly because Kalaf, you're a musician to begin yes. with, um, and this is your debut novel and you can see I'm putting novel also in um, air quotation marks because I want to talk about this later as well but yeah kind of can you talk about how you how you came to write yes. be writing a book and then Danny how did you come to be translating this particular book uh, thank you for having me um, it's um, it's a book that I I would say it started in a conversation about literature and music in Brazil, in fact. I'm in Brazil at the moment. So um, the conversation was with uh, with Agualusa in a panel. He invited me to come to Rio de Janeiro in a, in a festival, a music festival, but they had a panel with music. And the conversation somehow ended up in Kuduro, Angolan contemporary music, urban music, electronic dance music. And the audience was uh, quite shocked that I was talking about this modern aspect of Africa. And in the end of that panel, Agualusa told me, yeah, you should write the biography of Kuduro, which, again, is a genre that uh, in Brazil is very popular. Biographies of samba, biographies of bossa nova. I love the, the 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 concept of that, but immediately I was thinking, oh yeah, this will take forever because chasing Kuduro artists is almost impossible. 
I did that while trying to record them in Angola. So I say like, yeah, this is a lovely idea, but it's impossible to do it. And but five years later, something like that, um, I decided to end up my band and finish my music activities at least on stage. Um, and I felt like uh, our story was not told properly, so I felt like okay, let me let me go back to that idea, that challenge that Agualusa gave me and try to tell the, about this music genre. But at the, at the same time, I didn't want to write a biography per se. Uh, I decided to use my own story, my own perception, my own vision of the music. And in the middle of that, talk about migration in Europe uh, somehow, because I'm, also, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a migrant. I arrived in Portugal when I was 17. And I... And it's a subject that I that I that I like to talk about, but I find is important to talk about, especially now. Uh, so, yes, that's how the book came about. Of course, there's more to say, but <laughs> I just keep it to that. So, so not a mean feat to um, you know cover all these things of like wrap, wrapping up your musical career and also writing about the history of migration in Europe and having a sort of autobiographical part of it as well. Um, it's quite it's quite an undertaking for for first for a debut yeah. novel. Or is that maybe the the advantage of being a debut author that you don't know what you're getting yourself into? Absolutely, and and to and to be honest, I. Especially because of of Angolan uh, culture, I felt if the, if we had more books published on the subject, not only music but also Angolan history, mm. um, it would be easier for me. I felt like, uh, especially on the Portuguese edition, like working with Danny was good because we somehow end up editing quite a bit. Um, because of that, it's like it's, again you are writing your first novel and you you have so much to say and you try to explain everything. So I, 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 I believe that's the mistake I did on the, on the first edition, but I finally got the, the chance to work again. And I was a bit shy. And then um, I think the, the publisher asked if I was okay to edit some parts. And then, of course, then he was very kind and said, like, yes, that's, that's normal. This, don't worry about it. So we we went for it. So these edits were done on the Portuguese edition or on the English edition? On the English edition. Interesting. So can we, Danny? How did how did the English edition come about, and how is is it a very different book to the Portuguese book? Then the the English edition came about. I mean, it, the 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 gestation was either very it was either very quick or very slow, depending on where you want to start the story. Um, I I met Kalaf. I've only met Kalaf in person once, and we ha- had dinner with Agualuza in Lisbon ten thousand years ago, um, before this book had been written. I think, and that was the yeah. only time we met um, in person. Actually, this I should say this I think is the first time we've talked. Uh, this at this moment is the first time we've talked since starting work on the book. We emailed a million times, but we haven't actually had a, a, a conversation where we can see each other's faces and hear each other's voices. So I'm now I'm waving, <laughs> really waving to you at this moment. Um, Amazing! You heard it here first. 
this is it. Um, so we, we, we met uh, at dinner many, many years ago, and I uh, knew his work. I read the book when it came out. I liked the book when it came out. Um, and then a few years ago, I heard from Galaf, I think through Twitter or something. Yeah, I, um, I, I and, and from his uh, from his agent, Emma Shercliffe, about her plans to find a publisher in the UK. Um, asking if I would uh, help out with that a little bit and also think about translating it because I think they knew that I'd uh, read it and was a, was a fan. Um, and so I, I worked with Emma a little bit on when she was figuring out publishers to, to send it to. Um, and I also was in a very nice position of uh, having already read the book uh, because I read Portuguese, of course, and many publishers here uh, couldn't. Um, and so when Emma started talking to Alexa von Hirschberg, who was the editor at Faber, um, I arranged for, to have a meeting with her as well. And I had a chat with Alexa and, and asked, answered some questions about it. And I told her what I thought was great about the book. Um, we talked, in fact, in that first conversation about whether I thought Kalaf would be amenable to uh, doing some little editorial tweaks to it. Um, and I said I didn't know, but I guessed one of the things that I think is interesting about working with a musician is you can't not be collaborative if you're a musician. You can't you can't just think this is me, my own individual genius and my vision. You have to be used to the idea of working with other people. Um, and so Alexa um, was very keen on what she uh, heard about the book um, and was, I think, pleased to know that if there was anything she wanted to talk to Kalaf about, maybe reshaping slightly, that he'd be up for that. Um, and I was very pleased then to be to be asked to stay um, stay on board and and translated, um, which meant doing the sort of translation job, uh, the, the sort of uh, as it were the usual translation job, which we can talk about, um, and then being a little bit involved and the the stage where Alexa and Kalaf were working together on on a few sort of a few evolutions of the book, um, which Just actually. In some ways, I should say, required slightly less of me as a translator because, um, as you can hear in this conversation, Kalaf's English is very good, and I didn't need to mediate actually between Alexa and Kalaf. And I and actually, he, there, there are some new little bits in the book, um, in the English edition, which Kalaf wrote in English and didn't need me. Rather disappointingly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm slowly being made. Yeah, but, but I was very sus suspicious, <laughs> Danny. Every time I wrote a bit and uh, you didn't say nothing, I said like, no, like this need like uh, revision. This needs editing. I was very shy to write, and I was at, at some point I was saying like, I sh maybe I should just write in Portuguese and make <laughs> Danny work because. <laughs> <laughs> And here's the translator thinking AI was the threat. It's the authors taking over. <laughs> yeah, but I, I was not so sure about my 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 sentences in English. But uh, yeah, some of them stayed. Had you had you read the English edition and then and then added your sentences to it? So did you like almost have your English voice in your ear when you were then writing your sentences in English in the first place? Yeah, again. As Danny was saying, I, I believe because of my music music career and music mind, editing is also part of the process. Like, a, like album is edited and and reshaped until we send to to press. So I'm not I'm not like a 
thinking, yes, I wrote the book. This is the story. Just deal with it. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm there. You know, if, if you give me space for it, I will work and rework until we we got something. So it was nice also to to have Danny and 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 he was kind of like the sign off. So if if Danny was okay with it, um, yeah, we <laughs> we 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 done with that. So yeah, but I, I enjoyed and I, the and, I, and I'm pretty I'm I'm pretty grumpy. I mean, I have to say. That. <laughs> That was that was that was through email, so that was easy because like <laughs> <laughs> we didn't have debates so much, and was like, okay, this is the version, this is the this chapter, or I, I wrote I worked this bit and this part, what you think, and and so it was nice. So was it entire chapters you added as well? Was it entire longer sections? Sections, yes. Yeah. For example, I, I, I give an example. Um, the book, I I do a lot of ellipses. I don't know mm-hmm. if you say it like that, but yeah. it's not chronological. I was going in my Tarantino mode when I was <laughs> working on it. But then, of course, uh, this might work in Portuguese and it's easier because also like in Portuguese, we are accustomed to really long chapters and just like stream of conscious and 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 then do ellipses on, on that, just basically to 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 play with the with the with the reader. But in English, the publisher asked if I could rework the the chronology mm-hmm. and and find another flow. Is again, and and that's of course. If you change, you need to edit. Yeah, you need to mm-hmm. rework a little bit the sentence because you 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 lose the meaning, like the clever things that you put there, the hooks that you put there to you know entertain the the reader. Some you know don't make sense anymore. So I, I had to to rethink those those bits. It, it felt like that part of that is also you're talking about the, the things that are working in Portuguese, but I'm thinking also about the things that are that are cultural rather than literary or linguistic. Yeah. About how much um, what are the things that a, a reader in Lisbon would know and recognize. Yeah. And what are the things you have to simplify for the reader who is not in Lisbon or not in Luanda or not in yeah. Rio de Janeiro, um, and therefore needing to needing to clarify? I think a lot of it feels like it's about clarity and yeah. making it possible for a reader who, on page one of this book, goes "Kuduro," I have no idea what that is, to give them something to hold on to. Um, before you can disassemble the chronology and play around and you know there th- there needs to be that that reassurance before that much more complicated you know that sort of narrative seduction that happens with all the different bits of it you see reassurance and actually i think um i was going to ask about music first but I'll, let's talk a bit more about the structure of the book um I picked up the book, reading the first chapter. The author's called Karaf. The narrator of the first chapter is Karaf, who's a musician who plays in the band that happens to be the same band that Karaf, the author, is in um, and ends up in, is on tour, um, traveling by bus from Lisbon to um, Norway and loses his passport, um, his Angolan passport on the way. And then gets into trouble with the border police on the Swedish Norwegian border and ends up um in in a cell because the 
Um, that's the first chapter and I was reading it. Also, I guess the packaging is probably quite clever because looking back at the at the English book, it only says that at the back in the author bio that it's a debut novel. And then I was like, hold on, debut novel. And I got to the second chapter and suddenly you still think it's the same narrator. And at some point, Calaf turns up as a character that the narrator mentions and you actually, you're back in Lisbon a couple of years afterwards um, and the narrator is... Sophie, Sophie, Sophia, okay. yeah. Um, and then the third chapter is narrated by somebody completely different, one of the border guards in Norway. Um, so I was just wondering what made you choose this structure that starts off ostensibly as nonfiction or you could read it as nonfiction and then definitely swifts into, switches into thinking what the other characters might be thinking and the other people involved in in Calaf's story and Calaf them becoming, it's, it's a bit of a Paul Auster thing almost, like the author becoming becoming a character in the book. But what made you choose that that blend of genres in that sense? Yeah. Um, when, when, when I start, the first thing I had was this dialogue between... Uh, I would I would not say a criminal, <laughs> but like the you know the the incarcerated narrator and the uh, the policeman. Yeah, so that was the first idea to have this dialogue and someone trying to explain to the other, you know, about his life and why he's innocent and all that. So that was kind of the premises that I started with, and on the process of working with that, I discovered that I was so much deep in music that I I had to backtrack and, and give context. So that's how Sophia came about, to give context to, to, to everything. And for example, like I, I, I have this tendency of sometimes just pick random chapters and, and read it. And sometimes I'm absolutely in love with the with the with the first narrator, not because it's based slightly based on my biography, but um but then the comes the the Viking, you know, the the, the police the policeman that uh, arrested the the first narrator, and absolutely love what we achieve with that uh, in terms of um, again I say we because again the book is not written just by one person. It's the, the one person maybe come back comes with the story and the words and the phrases, but then there's so much collaboration on the process that I I cannot take that um, uh, let's say title by myself. Um, but then Sophia sometimes is really this narrator, this part that really holds everything together somehow, at least in my head. I feel like she's so important for the for the fluidity of the story and gives a little bit of breath and also gives a female perspective on things. Uh, again, I'm I'm not saying that I'm good on on writing female perspectives, but I tried and yes, I hope I succeed. I have friends that sometimes I say say things about about like a especially like the romance that is built there and sometimes they say, "Oh yeah, this is a man writing." But I will not tell which part they they complain. There's there's a really interesting experience I think for a for a reader. Just thinking about the first time I read this book, but also going back to it over and over, um, of the shift between that first section and the second section. Um, 
which isn't just to do with Sophia having a different voice and rhythm and the third section with the the border guard having another different voice and rhythm. It's to do, I think, Rebecca, with your question about the assumptions we make about what what category to put this book in. And you get through whatever it is, 60, 80 pages of something that it says somewhere on the back that it's a novel, but we could be persuaded that it's something else because of the territory it's covering, because of the name of the character and the biography of the character and the way in which it relates to what we know about the author. And so you can read it as, um, if not a memoir, at least that sort of autofiction that we know how to categorize. And then suddenly he does this thing where all of the rules of that break and you turn the page and he steps outside this character who we think, wait a second, I thought I thought I knew what kind of book this was. Mm. And suddenly this character who is some version of our author is in the third person. And the perspective is very different. The voice is very different, everything like that. And so I feel like there's a really nice, from a reader's point of view, there's a really nice kind of play of what we expect you know, the, the different ways these three characters talk about music and the different ways in which they are addressing us as readers. But I feel like, and I'm I'm going to stage a little coup and ask Kalaf a question myself, if you don't mind. <laughs> I kind of feel like there's something, there have to be quite different challenges when you're writing, moving away from, I guess that first voice, you you know when you got it right, in a way. Yeah. Because it is the character is not exactly you, and the voice is not exactly yours. Yeah. But but you but there is a kind of at least there's a there's a kind of game you play with that. Yes. And and as a reader, we think I, I recognize the style. This is a kind of autofiction. This is a kind of voice. And then you turn a page and go, oh, I didn't know he could do that. <laughs> it's it's a it's it's a bit of both, I believe. Like I was definitely enjoying the process. But at the same time, I was also facing the restrictions of writing about yourself. Um, all the characters are still alive. My, my siblings, my parents, even though I didn't include my siblings in the book, just because I didn't want to deal with, you know, like on dinner families. Like, oh, why do you, why you expose so much about our, <laughs> our family history? So there's a lot of restriction on, on, on working with that. And I, Absolutely, like, yes, I will never write a biography in my life just because you cannot tell everything. Uh, and um, so I had, again, I had to make it fun for me. Yeah? I had to jump on something that I that I was exciting about and, 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 and as a reader as well, you know, because, again, writing about myself is not like I, you know, I, I didn't reach that point yet that I can just be with no zero filters. So I those restrictions was were drowning me in 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 a way. Even though I was absolutely in love with the process, the story, the music, uh, also the let's say the legal tribulations that I was going through uh, at the time, and also reflecting on like visas and like migration and all that. So that, that process was in, in like, even though it was uh, uh, stressful, but okay, I, I, 
I needed to say and I needed to write about that. But at the same time, I felt like the book needed uh, a little bit more, uh, not just like my perspective, I felt like, uh, yeah, so why not bring more characters and carry on with this with this idea that, for example, again, one of the questions that I uh, that I put myself was, yeah, if 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 culture travels so fast and doesn't require, again, translation doesn't require explanation, doesn't require borders, why us as humans we tend have this tendency to just drown ourselves in bureaucracy and 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 policies that sometimes even don't, don't make sense in modern times, but somehow we just say, oh, it's tradition, this is how the, the law of the land is, so we stick with it. Um, so all those things were kind of the, the broader questions that I was bringing in and trying to answer through those characters. Mm. <clears throat> I feel like we need to talk about the elephant in the room, which is music, obviously. Um, because it struck me that also through using those different characters that you're, you're displaying different types of people's um, approach to music and how they, like, there's almost two categories of people, I feel like, in the book. There's the people who love and live music and that's what they live for. And then there's the occasional character who just listens to the radio or just like doesn't, or just doesn't mind what music's on. But simultaneously, you also have people who love and live music because they want music to spread and be listened to by everyone and others who want to contain it and want to kind of keep it to themselves or kind of keep it to a certain country. So there's always that dualism between freedom, music and freedom as well, yeah. um, and the sort of understanding across the divide, I guess. Um, I mean, you might want to even explain the title, Whites Can Dance Too, which I think yes. exemplifies that as well. Yeah, the... Um... The, the title was also a gift by Agualusa. Agualusa is all over this book, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so the, he he had this proverb um, that I did a slight adaptation of it, but that the, the proverb goes like, uh, whites can sing or knows good songs as well. Uh, and basically the meaning, I think I would say very you know, has some Jesus Jesus Christ uh, um, um, let's say concept. You know, like uh, you sh- we sh- we shouldn't judge anyone by their appearance. We shouldn't we shouldn't judge a book by its cover. You know, again, that's quite fitting for our conversation. Um, and and. And to be honest, like when I was crossing borders, I was always uh, trying to explain, like every now, like today. I, even though I, I do have uh, European citizenship now, I I don't need visas for most of the countries. But every time I go to to a border, even with my European passport, I I have this feeling that I'm an imposter. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't. Across this place, this space, and and this, let's say, prison that we live in, yeah, and absolutely because of colonialism, capitalism, like we we can go on and on and on and on to try to explain those reasons, but they do exist and they do stop people to enter certain sp- spaces, and somehow music is the only thing, 
especially talking about uh, African culture, black culture, all over the world, music is the language that somehow we, like, was, um, I would say, to to reclaim our humanity, That's that was the only art form that was left for us somehow. Yeah, we were denied education. We were denied access to places, but somehow we still had the drums. Yeah, and 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 our voices. You know, even though were, they were silent, or yeah, but somehow you you never lose that voice. Yeah, even if you are incarcerated in a prison, literally, you still can hum a song, and you can still like go through your hardship just falling in music like and and of course if you look into the history of america into the history of brazil music is what held this place together and and gave an identity even though this is not the first thing that people think about it when they think americas uh north and south this is not the thing that people valued the most, like the music, how music somehow shape a nation and shape uh, identity or whatsoever. It's, it's quite funny because when you, when, you, when you see all these people that make laws traveling, they all are praising their musicians, their music and stuff like that. But somehow, and, uh, uh, you know, when it comes to access to education, access to, uh, uh, yeah, life, like somehow these are overlooked. So those 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 are the things for me like that I found why music so important. Right? Like the why music somehow it's is our ultimate survival kit when we come to you know explore the world. There's something also I think in the book about um, the the challenges to the kind of integrity of one's own voice that come from not being able to move about across borders. Um, and however much, you know, you have your music, you have a voice, that's that's always a thing that people can't take from you. Um, the way in which one kind of music or one kind of voice is or isn't accepted in different places, <coughs> excuse me, the way in which um, one kind of music or one kind of voice is or isn't accepted in different spaces um, is very much contingent on the particular privileges that you have. There is a thing in the book about you know, how a band that can't just spend a summer in London gigging is going to build up a certain kind of international profile compared to a band that can. But I'm also thinking about the way in which there is a pressure to conform to what other people think of as um, what music is supposed to be, how do we understand it and how we talk about it. And there's a moment, Kalaf, in the first part of the book where uh, the character Kalaf goes to a party in London and he's asked by someone, you know, what what do you do? Or what kind of music or something? And he says, um, ghetto dance music. Yeah. <laughs> um, because... I don't know. He doesn't want to explain because ghetto dance music is is a little bit similar, and it's a thing that she will have heard of. And later, he thinks, "Why? You know, I should have just said kuduru." But there is a need to kind of 
shape this thing to fit into what is expected and what is known by the people, by this kind of new uh, new audience. And it feels like when Rebecca, you were talking about these these two different kinds of ways of thinking about music. Then there's, there's also that dichotomy between people who who are and aren't comfortable with going. Here is this thing. It has its own language, its own integrity, its own rhythms, its own uh, origins. And I'm not going to adjust it, shape it, soften the edges, apologize, explain very much for people who may not know it. It it feels like this is a book about people trying to explain music to other people as well, right? (laughs) There's a lot of, I mean, all three sections have a lot of people going, but you don't, but I mean, the, the second section begins with, you know, where does this music come from? And that's how this, this whole lovely relationship starts with that question, where Kizom comes from. Yeah. I was absolutely going to ask that question as well. Of So many characters ask, what is Kururu? What is Kizomba? Can you explain <laughs> to our our listeners who haven't I, read the book? I will, I will, I will not have the tendency to, to use the word that... Um, that <laughs> that Danny just explained um, and simplify it, but I would say is Angolan dance music. Yeah, that's what Kuduru is, in fact, and Kizomba somehow is also uh, more Angolan modern music. Um, in dialogue with so many other genres across the, the world. Yeah, uh, in dialogue with. Uh, Zouk from the French Antilles, uh, in dialogue with, I'm talking about Kizomba, yeah, it's like it's in dialogue with many, many other, uh, again, like uh, the slave trade was a terrible thing, and uh, but the music did travel, the, the rhythms did travel, so they get different shapes, like uh, if you go to, to the Caribbeans, you see and listen to something that is somehow in dialogue with things that you have in Angola from, or in Nigeria, for example, like, which is now like this global music hub that everybody's inspired with. Um, And Kuduro, again, is also a manifestation of something that I would say the lack of access to music instruments create hip hop. And then hip hop somehow had different uh, uh, ramifications, and Kuduri is also one of them. The same also with DJ culture, like you know, two turntables. So you add records and you create music with records yeah, by sampling, editing music to create new pieces of music. Kuduri is the same thing. That's the same thing. Yeah, it's just appropriation, reshaping, re-editing information that is already there uh yeah <laughs> i don't know if i <laughs> and, and that's that, that really it's that, that really interesting mix of so many different kinds of influence many of which again i think were, were new to me because i'm not from angola and i didn't know a lot of the names were there but there is that sense of it being incredibly rich because there's so much variety of, of things that fed into it. Um, which also includes like one, one of the, the, the kind of very influential figures 
I think you talk, Kalaf, about how. So how did it start? It started because he wanted to be able to dance like Michael Jackson. Yeah. So, <laughs> couldn't do that. Um, and so yeah. tried singing and tried to, and so there's this sense of all of these different kinds of, you know, almost background noise happening at the same yeah. time. Absolutely. And then something completely unique is born from it, but it's born, though it's a unique thing, it's born from this incredibly rich and sometimes quite surprising uh, mix of things. Yeah. I I I absolutely enjoy it. and 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 to be honest, like I I grew up in Angola, so I didn't I didn't have access to many of the things that were let's say you know in the West, <laughs> yeah, because Angola was part of the communist bloc, and we were more inclined to know things that coming from the uh, Czechoslovakia, Cuba, and so on and so forth. And uh, so when I came to Portugal, I had actually had access to hip-hop, like on a larger scale, not just like the mainstream, the things that somehow end up in Angola because of, again, the power of pop. Um, and so many music, so many information came through that. Like I, my jazz... Uh, introduction was through hip hop to a tropical quest to de la soul and and also you end up finding out more about japanese modern music or japanese jazz or something like that just because someone sampled a record and then you go on and on and on and it's like a, a rabbit hole just yeah doesn't have an end and i would say even like about about the title also gives this idea that um, you know this privilege that we have uh, in, let's say, in the West, that we basically think everything goes around the Western world. Um, and again, you know, it's not even my phrase, but I, th I think the the movie director Osman Sembenet say like, uh, uh, "Europe is not my center," and and for me. I I have I I'm dealing with this duality. I'm dealing with information that is so ours that I'm that I need to be aware and even like respectful, and also at the same time try to inform a world that doesn't know anything about the place that I that I come from. And and and, and it's so funny because when you say like uh, yeah, whites can dance too, but I'm also trying to ask people to look at us at the, at the same time, yeah? It's, it's a play in words, but not just the words, but it's also like the meaning of it. It's so broader and so important for us to understand that, like, yeah, they're, 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 especially when, for example, like I believe like when a Western travels to Asia, it's just like uh, overwhelmed with this world of information and culture that didn't, went through it, uh, at least wasn't affected directly by, uh, let's say, European values. Of course, in Africa, it's a little bit different, starting with language. Um, but at the same time, there are so many things, even like going to countries, I speak Portuguese, my mother language. Um, but when I'm traveling in Angola, the fact that so many of my uh, cousins and uncles don't speak 
Portuguese fluently, but they are incredible storytellers, even better than me. They are way more entertaining telling stories. And by, again, a terrible thing that happened to us, they're not able to write those stories. Uh, and and I believe, like, when you, when you say whites can dance too, at the same time, you're also saying, yes, you know, uh, Africans or Blacks know how to tell good stories too. Absolutely. Um, but also, I feel like what you're saying, this kind of switch of, like, it's also looking back at, like, you know, one culture looking at the other culture. I think what I find really fascinating about the book as well is I didn't know what Kururo was beforehand. So, like, it's this idea of, like, writing, like, learning about music, not through listening to music, but through the written word. And it's because I think, you know, there's the category of, like, musical biography, but chances are you pick up a musical biography because you love the music and that's why you want to read the biography. But there's something about, like, the genre not being... Like, I think there's something that happens in the English translation or in the English original of passages, obviously, because what is the translation? What is the original? Um, that happens because of, sort of, English language, Western ignorance of, of the genre of Kuduro, that you then learn about music through the written word. Um, but I wanted to ask both of you kind of how... How do you write about music, basically? Because <laughs> it's always it's a, it's a bit of this like crux about writing, which we I think we always advise people you know, when you translate read it out loud so you can hear the sounds of it as well. But a lot of people inherently it's a thing as you in the book and it's a silent exercise, yeah. um, but then it's based on sound. So how do you bring the sound into it into the written word without hearing it yeah. on the page? If that makes sense, I would say impossible. Yeah. And I think I would I would go there, and if I if I achieved that it was absolutely by intuition. Um, but I would say that what is important while writing about music is coming close to that feeling, yeah, that a feeling that is hard to explain. Yeah, it's like again, even like you know, try to explain love. Yes, you you can come closer but when you are really in love and when you are feeling it you know that it's very hard to 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 put in words i would say poetry is the easiest let's say literary form to talk about music but my my goal was not really like to write about music it was more uh, to write about the feeling of enjoying music but i think that's in that, that's that is how to write about music, isn't it? I mean, I feel like th there are some things that can happen in this book and others where you're explaining, you know, Sophia in the middle section, she, the, the, the guy she's with, Kito Hibero, sort of teases her for being a kind of anthropologist and, and needing to explain as an anthropologist where things came from and how they connect. But I feel like the thing that makes you understand music is understanding what it feels like to experience it. Um, I'm thinking about there's an Andrew O'Hagan novel called Mayflies, which is set partly in um, a kind of you know a, a young people and going to listen to music in a club in Manchester in the 80s. And it occurred to me reading that how good it was writing about music, despite the fact that it didn't explain, you know, and then there is a 
chord progression and then this is what happens in the middle eight of the song and then there was none of that but there was a really clear sense of what it feels like to be in a room when this song starts or this track this track starts up and Kalaf, you used the word feeling at the beginning of your yeah. answer and i think if if that's the thing that you can convey if you can make people understand what it feels like to be drawn onto the dance floor by this particular beat, which is not easy. It's also hard to describe what it feels like to, you know, taste coffee or to, (laughs) you know, see a sun, I mean, sunset, anything is difficult to describe that is not, uh, that is not built in words. Um, But I feel like that's the, the things that, that, the things that convey music are about conveying what it feels like to hear it or to feel, you know, the the, yeah. the rhythm and the soles of your feet, uh, and and trying to explain it any other way, uh, at least for me, slightly misses what what is important about it, which is what it does to you. So, did you, Danny, when you were translating it, did you listen to? Um, Kalaf's music. If if anybody wants to look it up, uh, Baraka Sistema has got. I think there's Spotify playlists. Other playlist providers are available as well. But I did look it up and had a listen in the background as well. But did you? Is that something that you did as part of your research, or were you like, actually, I want to just be carried by the words that convey the feeling without actually listening to the to the underlying music genre? There was a bit of both. I did um, a lot of it is in the writing. I think that the, the the first, second, and third voice have slightly different mm. rhythms to them. Um, I think that's a thing which, in some ways, it's easier to accentuate in English than it is in Portuguese. But there, there's something that's different in the rhythm of the, of the voices themselves. But I did get led to um, a lot of music I hadn't heard, um, partly because it's quite hard to resist it once you're led to it, and partly because there were a few. You know, concretely, it was useful to understand mm-hmm. this. Was, I watched, you know, videos that are being described and try to get yeah. a sense of exactly what these movements were. And um, but also, when when there was music that I did know, because there was some music in here that I know very well, that I knew very well even before starting. Um, there, it's interesting how how kind of immediately you connect to those moments and. Uh, in the book, if you already have a really close connection, so I I tend to know you know old Brazilian music more than I know new Angolan music. Yeah, um, and also, I feel like my, my, my perspective has changed yeah. now. To but there's a moment you. in the second book where in the second section where you know someone puts on a Chicobuaki song and it's Pedaços de Mim, and someone says, "Oh, that's the greatest song about loss that's ever been written," and I was I know every word of that song and it is one of the great songs about loss and it's it's very deep in my bones that song yeah i didn't need to look anything up but i had a, a really like an immediate kind of shortcut like it's it's what you know it's it's wired directly into the brain that um yeah. and so there are some things that i felt i learned and i explored and especially it's interesting coming back to you know when we got to the end of the process and i was looking at final proofs by which time I'd been listening to some music that had been new to me three months ago and is really not new to me anymore. And seeing the extent to which you kind of internalize, because it's based on your relationship to the music, it's not just something inherent in it, it's yeah. something about the, the relationship you have to it. 
and and also it's important to note uh, that this music, some of like part of it, maybe like a, a the, the large part of it, it's impossible to listen like while on your desk. Yeah, so you might just listen to it just as okay. Let me just have an idea what it is. But the full experience, you need to be in a room full of people. You need to see how people move to it. Yeah, and even myself, like I'm a poor kizomba dancer, and even though I enjoy to listen at home, and because it's like a down tempo compared to kuduro, which is like 140 BPM, so it's very hard to listen at home. Like unless, of course, you try to clean up the house, and that's very useful. <laughs> um, but listening in a in a in a club in a dark room, loudspeakers—that's what you should experience per se. Um, yeah. So yes, like people are not. I don't force people to listen to it just because the <laughs> the book goes around that. <laughs> The music genre, but yes. Um, Unless you have some frantic cleaning to do, of course. <laughs> <laughs> very good advice. <laughs> but I think it does. I mean, I, I imagine if if people say to you, Kalaf, you know, the book really made me want to listen yeah. to, to to discover more about Kuduro, discover more about Kizoma, to, to to listen to things I hadn't heard about. Yeah. Presumably, that is. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's that not only not a bad thing. That's not that's a no. That's a, I, I absolutely, absolutely love and and there are so many people that that come to me praising for the playlists. For, I'm a musician, so making playlists is 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 hard. I would say because it, again, you have millions of songs that you can put in, and then you have to again find the time and say, okay, two, two hours that's reasonable, yeah, for a listening experience. Um, but yes, people do enjoy playlists, and I and I have the tendencies to make them just to to please uh, the people. Yeah, I think it's that's funny when, he, when 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 he was when you started that sentence, said you know making playlists. I'm a musician, and so making playlists is. I thought you were going to say easy, and then you no, said it's hard. it's hard, and then it it made me think of there's there's that line um, the. The writer Thomas Mann said something like, um, "A writer is someone for whom writing is more difficult than it is for other people." Yeah, <laughs> I, I do believe that. <laughs> I do. Believe I think there's something about about yeah. um, having all the knowledge and choosing. Um, I'm definitely one of the people like I w- who would appreciate a playlist because I was looking at the back, being like, "Where's the QR code so I can listen to it alongside it?" Um, and also because there's so many particular songs for particular scenes that like really set the mood. Yeah, there's a playlist with the title of the book uh, on on Spotify that people can Ooh, go to. We'll see whether we can link that to the to the podcast episode as well. I did have um, another question about because Sandy, you were talking about earlier saying some of the descriptions might have been easy in English, and actually, because one of my questions was about the different types of Portuguese that underlie the book as well, because obviously. Um, we go from Lisbon to Angola and back. And then there's also in the second chapter, there's a, a Brazilian um, visitor uh, coming in who also, at some point the conversation is about like sort of how how people express certain things mm-hmm. in the different Portuguese as they are. Um, I was just wondering how you kind of dealt with, with those in English, Danny, as well. And 
and also kind of like whether you're using whether you're using people speaking in their like how 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 pronounced is it in the Portuguese that people speak very different? I don't know much about Portuguese, and I don't know how how different the different Portugueses are in that sense. So, like, is that something that creates a boundary or a bridge between the characters as well? Yeah, there, there, there is a difference. I, I would say, for example, like the, the obvious ones is how let's say an Angolan would build a phrase. Uh, and uh, you, you, we can go to extremes. For example, the use of plural uh, in 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 Angola is very. I would say most of the people are bilingual, and and there's no plural in our most of our languages. We have six major languages, and all of them, the use of plural is is not really. Um, I don't know how to use the grammatical term of that, but there's a term that explains that, but. The, um, yeah, I would I would say this; those are the the, the obvious ones. And, and I f- for example, I find I found that a lot in Brazil as well because of the influence again of African languages as well. So the, people build sentences differently in a way, you know, the way you you place the subject and the adverb uh, and things like that. Uh, but since the, this book, when I was writing, I wanted to go through the stream of conscious, and then when the characters were most of them into this process of stream of conscience. We changed a little bit and I put some of them, some of those parts in, into dialogues, direct dialogues. Um, but when, when you are thinking or when you are dreaming, uh, you have your own voice. So you don't really like, for example, when I'm thinking and dreaming, my English is it's like, spotless like Danny's like uh, but when I'm speaking things go slightly different yeah so <laughs> I'm a better English thinker than than actually speaker what one of the things about the um Rebecca your question about the the various Portugueses um in, in that second part which is largely a scene between um a Portuguese woman, a young Portuguese woman, and a man she meets who's from Brazil. Um, one of the things that, in a way, made it easier to translate that distinction is the fact that they talk about it. Is the fact that there are several moments at which they refer to the difference between their languages, um, and from a translation point of view, that's that's relatively easy, at least in this case, because. Because it's sort of obvious in this conversation what mm-hmm. the default is, because they're in Lisbon. She is our our narrator, and if there is a Portuguese that is not uh, hers, then it gets explained to her. Um, and so she and Kitu Hibeta have a conversation, mm-hmm. and every once in a while he says, "Ah, in Brazil we would call it," you know, she's using the word some word or other for kitsch and tacky and he says ah we'd we well we'd say braga in portuguese in in brazil in portuguese or where she says something uh, and he says ah we would say that but we'd say with you know borra with for extra emphasis in brazil that's that's how we would do it and so it's an even the language becomes a way of becomes another example of the, the characters having to explain things to each other becomes a very nice way of very neat way of, of conveying this new thing to a to a reader. 
and it's quite when it happened it's quite explicit and it's quite sort of explained um which which uh surprisingly makes it easier for the for the translation <laughs> yeah because yeah i, I get that because it get, becomes a subject of conversation and you kind of you don't have to like slip it in into your english translation as you maybe sometimes do like oh they're speaking in different versions of the same language which they are aware of but you as the english reader who's getting one english and maybe not aware of because there's like because there's something I mean there, there's those but there's also Cape Verdeans who live in in yeah. Portugal and presumably they have maybe an accent or maybe like you know different inclinations different sentence yeah. structures every, all the of funny, that. the funny thing about Cape Verdeans I'm very I'm very uh, um, envy of them <laughs> because they most of them speak Creole directly for the in school at least in Lisbon and it's not like all Portugal but in Lisbon the younger generation uh non Cabo Verdeans they adopt uh Cabo Verdean Creole just because the teachers don't understand so they've it's kind of like a second language that the students talk because again the influence of rap and also you want to be cool with your you know peers so Creole is the most spoken language. It's the second largest language in Lisbon because of this new gen- generation. And, and yeah, they speak fluently. And, and, and I laugh so much when I see, again, white Portuguese through and through, never left the country, doesn't have any, let's say, uh, like back, different culture background or whatsoever. And they are fluently in, in, in Cabo Verdean Creole. And yeah. I, I wish I, I had that with Angolan. We have words here and there in the Portuguese that are coming from Kimbundo or Umbundo. For example, that's way larger in Brazil. Like the influence of Angolan is way larger. Like, like it's so it's so impressive that. Um, so I'm, I'm having fun here, to be honest. Like, uh, yeah, we should say you're joining us from uh, Brazil this morning. Very early in the morning for you, not quite quite as early morning for, for Danny and I. Um, my last question is, what are you working on next? And I'm, I'm wondering whether that, whether being in Brazil is, is partly work-related. Are you, are you researching the next book? Are you still making music? Or is that something, yeah, is that past I, Carafa and future Carafa as a writer? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I'm producing. Uh, I'm actually producing... Uh, uh, a Cabo Verdean artist. That's why I'm so like immersed in Cabo Verdean culture now, and and it's it's lovely. And and of course, I I listen to the music. Cesar Evra is always like something like that everybody should listen to. Um, but yes, I'm in Brazil in a, a literary residency at Goethe Institute in Bahia. So it's very. Yeah, and and I was, it's it's my it's my third time here, and I somehow I when I travel to Brazil I always went to São Paulo and Rio and never really venture into Bahia, but last year was my first time in a literary festival, and now now of course I don't have a story I didn't brought a story maybe I will end up with a story and and. I, I brought some short stories that I want to indulge 
well here. Let's let's see what I can come up with. <laughs> That's exciting. I also like that because uh, Quito, the um, character from Brazil, is from Bahia, isn't he? So like, it's I like Bahia. that. Yes, but that, that you hadn't been. So like, real life is catching up with fiction. <laughs> no, yeah. it's a it's a it's a it's a true character. He is a writer and a filmmaker. Yeah. And uh, yes, he's from Bahia. And I met him like when last year when I was here, I was with him. So it was absolutely lovely. And he's, I think he's coming back. It's coming back this month also. I think we will meet again here. And uh, yeah, there's so many. Again, to explain Bahia, it's like I'm feeling like I'm in my hometown. Just to give you an idea, like how intense that is. Like I'm feeling like I'm in Bengala. Like the way people walk, the way people talk. And of course, it's also like being like in an African New York, sort of speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because of the influence from so many other um, parts of Africa. Yeah, you have the Yorubas, you have like people from Benin, like and all that is is visible. Yeah, you see and you feel it on the religion, you feel it on the food and the music and the rhythms and and the shapes of the bodies and and all that so it's quite impressive that's amazing well we're looking forward to the short stories that are coming out of the residency danny's also nodding are you have you got an eye on translating more of Carlos? I, i will never say no given a given a chance <laughs> <laughs> thank you we, we i mean we survived this first one and yeah Uh, yeah, no, it would be amazing to do more. It was a huge pleasure to do this book. It was also a huge pleasure to talk to you both. Um, thank you very, very much for for joining us on the um, Writing Life podcast today. And uh, thanks to Daniel Han and to Kala Fafalanga for thank you being so, so generously talking about White Skin Dance too, which is available in every good bookshop now. A big thank you to Kalaf, Daniel and Rebecca for their time. And make sure to pick up a copy of Whites Can Dance 2 from your local bookshop or library. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre. We're on Facebook or you can drop us an email at info at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. Don't forget you can find out more about National Centre for Writing over on our website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. And you can also sign up to our weekly newsletter. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation today over on the website by going to the Support Us page. Please do subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a positive review because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again, keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>